Welcome to Breaking Through with me, Kristen Rao Finkbeiner, powered by Moms Rising. We're so thrilled you're joining us today because we have some breaking news where your action and engagement is needed. We have some inspiring leaders who we're talking with. We have tips about how to run for office, and we have the inside scoop about some of the ways that Moms Rising is rising. We're going to jump right in with our first guest. We have a really important guest for you right now with some really important insights that you are going to be able to use. We have JJ Strait with the National ACLU. Welcome, JJ. Uh, Thank you so much. It's really great to be here um, with you today. I'm really glad you're on because a person's ability to choose if they're going to have children and if so, when and how many children to have is so central to our autonomy to us being able to have economic stability, to so, 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 so many things. And yet, right now, that ability to make decisions about our own body is under attack. The ACLU is coming through, thank you, (laughs) to protect our rights to make decisions about our bodies, decisions that should be able to be made with ourselves, our doctors, and kept outside of the world of politics. And right now in the news, There is a particular medication that I have a lot of trouble pronouncing, listeners. (laughs) Mifepristone, also called it. Yes, Mifepristone. Say it again. Mifepristone. Listeners, she said it right. I said it kind of, you know, not all the way right. (laughs) This medication is under attack. And it's one of the things that's under attack is sort of a subtle yet direct way of taking away our bodily autonomy. And yet, another way. And can you share with our listeners what's going on? And, you know, why is this important? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm going to go through a lot of information and it is confusing, right? Because we know that um, what you said is absolutely true. And we saw that demonstrated again, Kristen, in the midterms, which is the American people absolutely want to have these decisions made between their families and their doctors and whatever situation they're in, they want to be made without government interference. We know that. from the overwhelming results we saw in the midterms after Dobbs uh, was decided this summer. And for folks, uh, when I say Dobbs, that is of course the decision that came last summer that overturned the 49, almost 50 year precedent of Roe v. Wade in this country. And so when they did that, uh, Kristen, our opponents uh, kept saying, well, it should be decided by the state. It should be decided by the state. And then as it's been decided by the states, um, right after those midterms, a group called the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is actually calculated as a hate group by the Southern um, Poverty Law Center, just so folks are aware, filed a lawsuit in Texas. That's important only because that's where a particular judge that they prefer uh, to hear their cases happens to reside. This, This is filed in Texas. It's against the Federal Drug Administration, the FDA. This is of course the organization that in our um, in our country helps us uh, uh, legalize drugs or uh, approves drugs, right? They go through rigorous uh, safety um, testing, and then they approve drugs for certain things. So what these folks did, the ADF, is that, in in my opinion, no coincidence in, in timing. Uh, they bypassed the American people, filed this lawsuit that calls on the FDA to remove 
the approval of mifepristone, which is one of the drugs used in medication abortion in this country. Medication abortion accounts for more than 50% of abortions done in this country. It's safe. It's been, and it's also, Kristen, I don't know if you know this, it's been approved for over 20 years. So it's not only that they are beyond the statute of limitations for calling for this, in most cases, this kind of lawsuit would be dismissed out of hand. But let me tell you why they filed it in this court. That's because it's going to go to a judge called uh, Judge Kaczmarek, who is a Trump appointee, who sees a lot of these kinds of cases. And you can imagine part of the reason he sees these cases in this court is because he uh, is known to make pretty radical decisions. In, in fact, he's on the record after Dobbs saying that he believes that birth control should also be uh, a, a matter decided by the states and not uh, a right. So our expectation is that he will rule. And here's the important caveat. Even though this is Texas, this has nothing to do with Texas. Texas, of course, will be included. But this is not a Texas case. That's just the venue, Kristen. This would affect if he was to grant the plaintiff's injunction or grant their remedy in the case. This would affect every single state in the nation. I'm calling you today from lovely Colorado. It would affect Colorado. It would affect California. It would affect New York. It would affect everywhere because he would be basically directing the FDA to remove their approval of this drug, which is used in, again, safely in a majority of abortions in this country and also for miscarriage management. I want to repeat back what I think I heard you say, because this is horrifying. What I think I heard you say is that people against people being able to decide if, when, and how many children they are going to have, have filed a lawsuit in Texas that could take away a key tool for Medicaid abortion for 50% of Medicaid abortions in all states in America. That yeah. is horrifying. It's hard to believe, isn't it? Because it's so outrageous when you say it. Uh, again, we do know that uh, Roe v. Wade was overturned and that states are deciding. But because states are deciding, states like mine, um, I don't know where you are, but many states across this country have actually put it into their constitutions to protect it. And yet this group, went around that process, went around the American people, went to one judge and stated that they wanted this very safe medication, which again was approved 20 years ago in this country. It's been used globally for longer. Um, it's safer than Tylenol. Study after study has shown it's safe. Uh, and again, like they want to have it removed from the shelves um, so that people have more limited access to abortion no matter where they live. Because yes, Kristen, our opposition is clear in their mission, which is to end legal and accessible abortion, no matter where you live in this country. And frankly, I believe they also don't believe that we should have access to reproductive health, the spectrum of reproductive health care. They've, they've made comments about birth control, not in this case, but they've made comments about birth control. They've made comments about um, other uh, IVF and other things. And so again, as we are considering the spectrum of what the American people expect in this country, which is for us to have access to medical care and make our own decisions. This group is saying, no, we want to intervene and say what you can have access and you can't, even though there's a 20 year history of safe medication abortions in the United States of America. I'm appalled. I'm outraged. I'm irate. I'm fired up. I'm ready to go and fight back against this. I mean, really, this is not okay. People, as you heard at the beginning of this segment, 
the vast majority of people in America, Democrats, Republicans, independents, libertarians, actually support a person's ability to choose what to do with their body. And in fact, we saw that play out in the 2022 elections. Every time abortion was on the ballot in any state, red, blue, or purple, abortion care access was expanded, not limited. So we know the American people, not just with the polls, but with their votes, want us to be able to choose what to do with our bodies. And that is so important. And six out of 10 people who need and have abortion care are already moms. I want you to sit with that for a moment. This is a big, 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 big deal. Now, my grandma worked hard and many people's grandmas and people all across the country, across all generations, worked hard to get us our long fought rights to be able to make decisions about our bodies. And sadly, she passed away about a year ago and about a month before her passing away, which was six days shy of her 106th birthday, she called me up and she said, Kristen, I see what's happening in the news. You cannot give up. You cannot feel tired. You cannot feel overwhelmed. You have to promise me that you and everybody, listeners, I'm giving you the grandma speech too. Keep fighting. Don't just take this. So what can people do to stop this ridiculous, awful, terrible misuse, abuse of the just judicial system? Yeah, I, um, I'm i so glad you asked that question. I'm so glad that you are, are fired up and I'm sorry to hear the passing of your grandma, but you know, your grandmother and many of ours, we're standing on their shoulders, I like to say. We're standing on the shoulders of, our, of the giants who came before us. And absolutely, you know, it's a frustrating moment like Dobbs because there isn't a perfect answer here, Kristen, where we can just undo this uh, necessarily uh, because of the way it will wind. I, I want to say, state that, this will wind up through the courts. And unfortunately, it, its last stopping point is not is the Supreme Court, right? So we're likely to see some sort of um, directive. We're expecting, again, this case should be, I want to go back to, this case should absolutely be dismissed on its merits, right? But we don't expect that. And it will go from this judge to the Fifth Circuit, which is not a friendly circuit in this country, to the Supreme Court, which we already know um, has opined on Dobbs and SB8 before it in such a way that state that tries to limit abortion uh, uh, services for us in this country. Um, and so based on that, I think what we need to do is build on exactly what you said. The midterms were the first collective moment after Dobbs where we could say clearly where we were by, by showing collectively our votes and um, our outrage at the polls. And we're going to continue to do that, making sure that places like the ACLU, working with your great organization and our other coalition members, really understand where people are in this country, um, when you're where your elected officials stand on abortion. We need to call on our federal. It's hard to do this in a moment where we have a split federal, but that shouldn't stop us. You, you named it. This is not a Republican or Democrat issue. This abortion is a nonpartisan popular issue where people do expect their elected representatives to defend you know, their right to make this decision on their own in private with their family and with no government interference. So we need to ratchet up that pressure, particularly because this is not also going to be just, like I said, the 13 states, which is appalling. And we should continue to fight that as well. This isn't going to be just the states where this is illegal. This is every single state that will be limited to have this particular access for no reason, right? Like the, the reasons they're giving just do, do not make sense uh, because they're trying to call into question 
it's safety, which it has, you know, a years long record on safety. So we will be working across our movements to make sure that people show up and show out, that they know what their, where their elected officials stand. And listen, right after jobs, I know people always said, like, don't just tell me to vote. And I don't want to just tell you to vote. I'm going to tell you to do a lot of different things, including making sure that we're continuing to put that kind of pressure on our elected officials throughout holding them accountable in the moments after we elect them or unelect them. Um, and that's some of the stuff that we'll be doing immediately. And here's the one thing you can immediately do. If you're fired up the way that Christian and I are today, when you hear this and you're outraged and you're sitting in your own dis disbelievability, call your friends, go to your favorites in your phone right now and call every single friend between now and Friday and update them on this. Go to our websites to look for more information. I'm with the ACLU. There's lots of information that Planned Parenthood has put out. Let people know this is happening, which and let them know that Mifepristone is safe. And sometimes a lot of you, if you're able to share your personal stories, Kristen, I want you to know I had a miscarriage and I used Mifepristone. It was very important for my health to be able to use it. And I live in Colorado. If this decision goes through, I wouldn't have had that ability to that very important drug to help me manage my miscarriage. And it's nobody's business besides my family's that particular medical decision. So we often have these personal stories that if we're comfortable to share, really illustrate the impact. And that's the very first most important thing we can do is make sure people are educated. This is coming up, the briefs in this case are due on the 24th. And so from there, we're gonna be calling out um, on all of you to help us stand up in, in, in states and across um, and calling on our federal elected officials to absolutely we need to pass protections for um, protecting access to abortion and birth control in this country. And we need to continue to let them know that that's our expectation. Absolutely, 150%. Do everything that JJ just told you. Call your friends, let them know that the medication that supports 50% of abortions in the United States of America and supports people having miscarriages and other reproductive needs is under attack by a judge who was appointed by Trump. Ridiculous. So tell your friends, get involved, stay voting, and stay engaged, people. This is a long fight. This is a marathon, not a sprint. Thank you so much, JJ Strait, with the National ACLU for being on. Thank you for protecting our rights. Thank you for fighting for us. Thank you for spending time with us on the radio and so much more. Thank you. My absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. We're going to take a quick break, but stick around. We'll be right back with our next guest who's talking about new American leaders, why representation matters, and how you can help lift new leaders. We'll be back in a quick flash. with me, Kristen Ralph Finer, powered by Moms Rising. We are joined right now by an amazing, spectacular guest. You are going to love, 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 love Gita Dagger, who is with New American Leaders as the president and CEO. Welcome. Hi, it's so good to be with you. I'm so excited that we're getting a chance to talk. I'm excited too. And with my excitement, I would love to hear a little bit about New American Leaders. What is New American Leaders? How can people get involved? What's happening? How can people support all the things? Oh, I love all of these questions. So New American Leaders is the only national organization dedicated to training and preparing immigrants, refugees, and first and second generation Americans, what we call New Americans, 
to run, win, and lead in our American democracy. We're really uh, preparing folks to lean into uh, our democracy, to flex that political muscle uh, that we are all very capable, but not have always had the opportunity to participate in. And so what we're trying to do here is knock down some of these barriers and let people see the leadership potential within themselves. You know, our democracy is so much stronger with all of us uh, involved in it. And we want to get to see more people like me, myself, I'm an immigrant, I'm a refugee, and uh, to see folks run for office and to really lead campaigns and step into appointment positions and administrative positions in government. And our country, our democracy has a long way to go until we have a Congress and local leadership positions that reflect and respect who we are as a country. So I'm so thankful that you're doing what you're doing. It is critically important to have a democracy that reflects and respects the country as a whole. Can you share a little bit about your story and how you personally got involved in American Leaders? Yeah, you're absolutely right, by the way. You know, our government and all of its entities were set up uh, to mirror the reflection of white land owning men. Uh, and that's not what the country looks like today. It's not a bunch of land owning men who are white and wealthy. This is uh, a community and a society that is very diverse and becoming more diverse by the day, uh, let alone by the year and by a decade. And uh, I'm one of those people that is an immigrant and a new American in the United States. I moved here a couple shy, a couple months shy of 10 years old. I came uh, from Sierra Leone. I'm 100% Lebanese, third generation Sierra Leonean. I'm a third culture kid and come from a line of immigrants from place to place in pursuit of stability and economic opportunity and safety, frankly, as well. Um, and uh, we escaped a very brutal civil war in Sierra Leone um, uh, to finally make it here. And like any new American, um, you know, we don't know what we don't know. And so there's a lot of challenges we face into uh, getting accustomed to a new country, a new way, new systems. And uh, New American Leaders for me was a pretty important part of my journey. I'm actually an alum of our own programs. I did Ready to Lead in 2015 in Michigan. Uh, and it was actually Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, who was then state representative, Rashida Tlaib, who flagged this opportunity for me. And I said to her, hey, I'm not really interested in running for office. You know, that's not my jam, Rashida. And she said, you're going to meet some amazing folks and you just never know. And it really did change the trajectory of my career. I was a policy and advocacy person. I enjoyed being behind the scenes. I enjoyed talking about issues and not really focusing on the people. Uh, and I realized with through the training is that that's also a detriment, that you have to be able to do both. You have to be able to focus on the issues, but more importantly, focus and invest in the people who are going to shape and decide uh, key things related to these issues. And so I went on to continue to do policy work. I also uh, managed multiple campaigns to help new Americans get elected uh, and went on to serve in Governor Whitmer's administration as a director of appointments in the state of Michigan. I was so proud to do that. Um, and then this opportunity to sort of a, what I call a homecoming to come to new American leaders and uh, and be the CEO was something that was really hard to say no because it was so personal, as hard as it was to leave the governor's office. Uh, and I'm so happy to be a part of the organization to help lead it in this way. I love everything about your answer and want to just sort of double down on the importance of being trained to run for office and 
of being trained to help people run for office. A lot of people see, quote, politicians and have an idea of what it's like to either run for office or help people to run for office. And that idea often when I talk to people is kind of like a movie that never actually existed. <laughs> There's really a lot of nuts and bolts tactics that aren't that difficult to either helping someone run for office or running for office yourself. What would you say in the trainings that you do are the most tactical or useful tips about running for office itself? Yeah. So in our trainings, we show our participants how to use their identity and their ex their experiences, their lived and professional experiences to connect with voters, strengthen our democracy overall. We've been doing this work for a little over a decade, and we've trained over 1,500 people uh, to run for office or lead campaigns. And our alumni have proven that they have the skills that they need to run and win. And we are just a part of that in pushing them forward. And so what it looks like is we, you know, we offer a train of uh, a suite of trainings uh, programs throughout the year to empower the next generation of leaders. But our signature training uh, and sort of our intro training that we really encourage folks to take is our ready to lead training. And with that training, we focus on empowering new Americans and especially women of color. In particular, we've dedicated years of uh, training and tracks specifically to women in particular. Uh, and what Ready Lily does is it identifies the immigrant experience as an asset to civic leadership. That's the core of it. The curriculum for the trainings is designed by new Americans for new Americans. So it's very unique. Uh, and it focuses on how to message, how to fundraise, how to embrace one's heritage uh, to become a successful candidate. You know, at the trainings, you'll see things like uh, folks for the first time ever writing and, uh, and uh, delivering a compelling stump speech, for example. That's not an exercise that the everyday person goes through uh, or learning how to do some grassroots fundraising, uh, because as the new Americans, sometimes that topic is taboo or we don't have access to certain uh, a do a political donor networks. Right. It's also practicing messaging and pivoting and engaging with other leaders who might look like them for the first time. That's the first time they'll get to engage in that way. And even more unique to our training, we offer actually one on one coaching post training. And so they can tap into that resource at any time after they've gone through our program for us to help guide them on their leadership journey. That's so good. I want to double down on a few things that you mentioned, one of which is the power of each person's story. Now, a lot of people think their story isn't powerful or think their story mm -hmm. might be maybe a negative thing. But let me tell you, the power of the story of your story listeners is so incredible. And I'm wondering if you could share a little bit from that training about the power of people's stories and why the power of personal story is powerful and, and maybe even touch on why so many people think it's not powerful when it is often the super secret superpower, the power of your story. Yeah, absolutely. At the end of the day, we're all people, regardless of what we identify in terms of our politics or our issues or what you know spectrum exists that we talk about at the end of the day we're people and we connect on values and we connect on experiences that we share you know all of us have our own unique experiences overall in life but often somebody somewhere out there really feels that connection when we share our stories and when we root that in our values it makes a huge difference you know i encourage people especially anyone who has an inkling of an interest in public service or whether to run for office or manage our camp manage a campaign that ultimately your story is going to help bring someone out of it brought, bring somebody out onto the light whether it's an issue that's affecting them at home whether it's childcare whether it's 
something as tragic as the shootings, mass shootings that we're seeing all too much these days and way too often, or whether it is something like access to opportunity in a community. I mean, if you look at something even as simple as, you know, as, um, uh, as complicated and as simple as COVID, for example, that brought out leaders in our communities that others would have never identified as leaders. At the end of the day, the folks that kept our communities running were essential workers. And those are, for example, not individuals that I would have seen as uh, people that should be stepping up for leadership. Those are the people that we want to run for office. Those are the backgrounds and lived experiences that we want to be at the decision-making table across the country in every power uh, building and every dynamic that exists. You know, we want teachers, we want social workers, we want the essential worker who previously hasn't had the opportunity to step in and to make their voice heard. Absolutely. And I have so many follow-up questions. So if I'm thinking about running for office or if a listener is thinking about running for office, you mentioned fundraising, messaging, your story, the stump speech, all of those things have to happen. But breaking it down, what is the first step? Should people reach out and find an organization like New America to figure out how to get trained? Yes, absolutely. There are so many organizations out there that want to support, uh, including us uh, at New American Leaders. Uh, We want to help you in your journey. We want to help train you. You don't have to know the answers to everything. We'll help you find them. Uh, It makes a big difference when people like us are running. We are changing the course of history for this country. We are changing the face of government. And it's really essential. One of the things that I want to say loud and clear to all of the listeners, don't wait for somebody to ask you to do this. You have everything that you need within you. You just need a little bit of guidance. And we're thrilled to be in a position to be able to support you and be able to guide you through some of this and to give you the resources to talk about some of these things. You know, you don't have to do that work. You just have to be willing and ready and uh, want to be able to serve in this way uh, and to be receptive to that feedback and to that coaching. Uh, But more than anything, I want you to see that spark in you. Yeah, the spark is key. And I want everybody to go to New American Leaders, sign up, support, get involved, follow all the things. And when we're talking about the spark, the spark for change, um, what keeps you hopeful? What keeps me hopeful is uh, all the potential that exists for us. Uh, I see some of it playing out today. I see so much more that we can accomplish. You know, even on the darkest day, uh, you know, we're going through a lot of Michigan right now. You know, we just unfortunately had the tragic mass shooting at Michigan State University. Uh, And even on the darkest day, like today, uh, I think about all the potential that exists and what it would mean to have more new Americans at the table to help move decisions and key legislations on things like gun control, like things that around inclusion, on things uh, around democracy reform that make it more accessible. So on the darkest day, even like today, I'm hopeful for our future because I know that we're gonna continue to be more representative. We're gonna see more uh, engagement. Uh, and I'm hoping that nobody has to wait for a tragedy for them to be engaged and that they'll see it within themselves to really step up so that we can prevent future tragedies from happening. So true. And we only have a minute or so left, but for the people who don't want to run for office for one reason or another, do you have tips on how they can help other people run for office and still help us make a democracy that reflects and respects who we are as a nation? Absolutely. Not everybody has to run for office and running for office is not made for everyone. That's totally okay. And totally respect that. There's so many ways to get engaged. I always say there's a role for everyone to play. There are campaign galore out there that you can get involved in and support. 
you can take on an official role and we'll also train you to do that. So New American Leaders trains not only candidates, but folks who also want to lead campaigns and manage campaigns and want to be involved. Another route is appointments. As a former director of appointments for the state of Michigan, I want to encourage folks to look at opportunities to be appointed to boards, whether that is a super local level or all the way to the federal. There is a board for almost everything somewhere. And so encourage you to think about your talents in that way. Um, and then at the end of the day, too, there are campaigns that are not focused on people that you could lead. Issue-based campaigns. Do you care about reproductive justice? Do you care about maybe keeping your libraries open a little bit longer? Do you care about Head Start and child care programs for kids? Those are all issues that you can get engaged in and take leadership on. And we want to help you through that journey. Thank you so much for being on. Gita Dagger, President and CEO of New American Leaders. Sign up at newamericanleaders.org. Support follow, lift, get involved, stay involved. Thank you, Gita. Thank you so much for having me on. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Next up, we're talking with a state senator from Michigan about gun safety and ending gun violence in America. We'll be back in just a moment. Breaking through with me, Kristen Rao Finkbeiner, powered by Moms Rising. We have a very, very important guest for you right now. We have State Senator Stephanie Chang from Michigan. Senator, we at Moms Rising were so incredibly moved by your floor speech about what it's like to be a mom, Asian American leader, and a legislator following the Monterey Park shooting. I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about that experience about being vulnerable and honest and a leader and why that matters, particularly in this time when right now gun violence is actually the leading cause of death of children. And we're talking right after a horrific tragedy, another mass shooting just happened in Michigan. Um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being on to share with us. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, it's a really important uh, conversation to have. And uh, I am a mom. I have two little kids. I have a three-year-old and a seven-year-old. Um, and a couple of weeks back, um, shared on the Senate floor, you know, originally I was planning to just have a statement um, wishing everyone a happy Lunar New Year. Um, but after the Monterey Park shooting, I felt that it was really important to highlight you know, how a lot of folks in the Asian American community were feeling at that time and continue to feel, um, you know, uh, when there was the loss of far too many lives um, due to several mass shootings two days in a row. Um, and so, you know, I re remember talking about the fact that I had been going to all these Lunar New Year celebrations in the community and with my kids and um, that we needed to continue to celebrate. Yet at the same time, we're, we had a moment where we paused and thought, would it be safe to still go? Um, and then it really raised questions about where are we safe? Are we safe um, at our schools? Are we safe you know, now on college campuses? Are we safe literally walking down the street, grocery stores? There's just so much gun violence that has con just continued to uh, plague this country. And it's something that we know we can take steps to address. And so... Um, it is absolutely heartbreaking. You know, today we are less than 24 hours after mass shooting 
in East Lansing at Michigan State University, where so many of us have uh, connections there, friends, family, um, you know, who lived through this terrifying time of getting a message that you have to run, hide, or flight. I mean, as no one should have to worry about that when they're going to college um, or anywhere. And and it's absolutely terrifying. Um, and so a lot of folks are feeling really devastated right now. And, you know, we're also really trying to make sure that we're standing with the families of those who were killed as well as you know, the MSU community, which is just so devastated right now. It's devastating. I mean, like beyond words, no words devastating. And one of the things is that you are continuing to fight to move forward, to be hopeful about policy change, being able to address the mass crisis of gun violence in America, where again, Gun violence is the number one reason why children are dying in America. That is not okay. In this time of incredible crisis and honestly despair, what keeps you going? Honestly, my little kids, my three-year-old who's walking around right now eating some gummies, and my seven-year-old, they're my little motivators. And so uh, on hard days in the legislature or in hard days processing the news that's around us, um, you know, being able to come home um, and know that it's their future that I'm trying to work hard to build for them because um, they deserve a much better world than what we have right now. Um, and thinking about the fact that they have uh, gone through so many, you know, lockdown drills at their young age where I definitely did not have any of those experiences at their age. It's just it's mind blowing, but it's also, um, they give me a sense of hope because I know that they just deserve so much better and, you know, ran for office in order to make a difference for my community. And so, uh, we've just got so much work to do and work that we can continue to do to, uh, to build a future where our communities are safer from gun violence and continuing to push for extreme risk protection order legislation and safe storage, to protect our kids, um and as well as universal background checks and these are common sense gun violence prevention policies that we know so many people support um and would help to save lives and we may not be able to prevent every single mass shooting um but we have the hope and the optimism that we can save many lives and we can uh we can reduce fatalities we can build off of the absolutely incredible activism of students and moms and just community members and teachers who are saying enough is enough. Um, and so that alone is just so inspiring. So my kids are a huge inspiration, as well as just all of the activists out there who are saying this is this is enough. We've we've got to make some change. Absolutely. And Moms Rising members are behind you all the way. Speaking of being behind you all the way, when you were sworn into office, you were pregnant with your baby girl looking on. You were full on in your mom power. We just watched Rihanna perform at the Super Bowl pregnant and talk about the importance of her baby boy seeing her do her work and have agency in the world. What do you make of this moment where moms are increasingly in the spotlight in a good way? 
because too often moms are put on the back bench and ignored. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really exciting um, with Rihanna and then also thinking about other celebrities like Serena Williams and others who have really been out there talking about motherhood, both the positives as well as the many challenges. Um, it just makes things, one, I think it makes them more human, right? Maybe it makes them, a lot of folks hopefully uh, humanize them a bit more. Um, and, you know, as lawmakers, you know, I, I use the hashtag mommy legislator. Um, because as you mentioned, I started this job pregnant. And so it's been the simultaneous journey of motherhood and public service all in one. Um, and it is absolutely challenging at times, but it's amazing at the same time. And, uh, I think it's really important that we continue to, um, lift up moms who are doing amazing things. Um, and being a mom shapes how we serve, you know, shapes how we do our work. Um, and I think that's a good thing. Um, we've got a lot of current, you know, current life experiences. Um, so when we're talking about childcare or schools or healthcare or just really any issue, we're thinking about it in, in a frame of like, how does this impact my own family right now? Um, and so I certainly, as I've voted on legislation or worked on legislation, um, I've been unafraid to talk about my kids and how I'm thinking about how certain issues are going to impact them. Yes. And there are so many moms. I love that you talked about representation. 86% of women in America become moms by the time they're 44 years old. And yet it's almost like you put on an invisibility cloak when you become a mom. And that means that the public policies that lift moms, families, and our economy and our businesses the most are often the last ones heard. Policies like access to affordable childcare, paid family medical leave, healthcare, maternal health. All of those policies that most other countries have have been lagging behind in the United States of America, in part because we really do put an actual almost invisibility cloak on mom. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for running as a mom, for being a mom. You have a lot of strong mom elected leaders. Right now we have uh, Senator Murray who originally ran as the mom in tennis shoes. She is in the U.S. Senate, and she's now third in line to the presidency, not giving you any pressure. Also, Nancy Pelosi, the first woman speaker of the House, who many historians have already said is the most effective speaker in the history of all speakers. Um, she ran and had five kids. So you're in with good mom power. But thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for serving. Do you think it's important for more moms to run for office? And if so, do you have tips? We've been talking about running for office a bit on this show, and I'd love to hear your tips if you think it's important for more moms to run. Definitely think it's a more it's important for more moms to run. And um and I, you know, it can be a challenge, but I think that there are a lot of folks who want to see more moms in office. Um, and it's really, really awesome. You know, I uh, of course, I've had some folks who have been critical, but for the most part, there have been uh, many people who have been so supportive, um, you know, and I'm I'm thinking about, you know, bringing my kids to the parades. They love it. Um, I've taken both of my kids separately because I don't know if I could handle them all at the same time uh, door knocking and they actually really enjoy it. There's a bit of a time limit on how, how long they'll last door knocking, but uh, and there you find ways to make it work. Um, and if you surround yourself with a good team um, who will, uh, you know, be flexible and help, you know, understand what your schedule looks like as a mom and, and make it all work, um, you can you can do it. 
Um, and it's super important to have moms in office to be able to, uh, again, lift up issues in a way that others can't, um, to talk about issues um, in terms of how it's going to affect their family. And, um, you know, those voices are so, so important. So, um, so find some support, find folks who are going to be able to uh, understand that your needs are are important um, as a mom, and um, and you know reach out to other moms. I think there's a lot of us who are willing to mentor and answer questions and different things like that for um, you know moms who are considering running for office, and then of course to. Uh, reach out to groups like Vote Mama. And, you know, I know there's a number of different groups that are out there who are really focused on supporting uh, mom candidates, um, depending on ideology. And so um, find those groups, connect with them. Um, and there's a lot of support out right there, um, out, right, you know, right now for folks who are thinking about running. Thank you. Thank you. And you mentioned that you've had some negative pushback, and I can imagine what that's like. So I and many people are thinking we should start a movement where people ask dads who are elected to office, hey, what's happening with your kids? Hey, who's making dinner? Hey, who's putting the kids to bed tonight? Not just moms, people. So we're in a moment where you've probably heard me say a whole bunch of time, listeners, that being a mom is a greater predictor of wage and hiring discrimination than gender. And that goes for moms in elected office too. Part of the way that we combat that is we check our own internal, accidental, implicit biases in all ways. And one of the ways to do that is to say, huh, am I asking moms and dads the same questions or am I only asking moms who's watching your kids? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. I know, um, you know, there's definitely that uh, double standard that exists. And uh, I think that you're right, we should be asking the same questions, no matter if it's a mom or a dad. And, um, or maybe we just don't even have to ask those questions, honestly, like if, if people are doing the job and providing good public service, isn't that kind of what matters? I, I you know, I think that yes. for the most part, people want uh, public servants who care, who share their values and who work hard. So, yep. um, you know, and in a way being a mom or dad or who, you know, uh, being able to bring those experiences is super important, but I think looking at, uh, parenthood as an asset, um, to yep. public service is where we should be headed. Totally. One time I had the incredible honor of writing an article about both Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor and Madeleine Albright, who was our first woman Secretary of State. And Madeleine Albright said that her best training to be a highly effective Secretary of State of the United States of America, by the way, was dealing with her three kids and their arguments in the playground sandbox. <laughs> That's amazing. She said, you wouldn't believe how much double tasking argument, logistics, all of the things that you do and learn as a mom came in handy in politics and as the Secretary of State. It was incredible. So yes, being a mom is an asset. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Listeners, thank you for joining us with State Senator Stephanie Chang of Michigan. And State Senator, thank you for serving. Thank you for lifting democracy. Thank you for lifting moms, dads, people, parents, and everybody um, in Michigan and across the nation. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Next up, we're talking Moms Rising, a leaderful movement, how leaders together are stronger and smarter than any one leader. We'll be back in just a quick moment. We're going to fight for love.
through with me, Kristen Rao Finkbeiner, powered by Moms Rising. We have the newest member of the Moms Rising team with us, a member you are going to love, Jenny Beyer, who is coming to us from working inside the Beltway. She's worked in politics. She's worked in change. She's worked in narrative shifting. She's done it all. Welcome, Jenny. Hi, Kristen. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited that you're going to be on for a conversation. Listener, she's going to ask me some questions too. I don't know what they are. I'm scared already, nervous. But starting out, talking with you, can you share a little bit about when you came to Moms Rising with the perspective of having worked inside the Beltway, what is unique about Moms Rising and what we do? So working as a communications director for a member of Congress, what was so awesome about Moms Rising is you would bring us these stories and these storytellers, and they were well-prepared. They knew the policy. They had an emotional, you know, presence in their story, and it was just so impactful. And our events with you all were always the most successful. So listeners, you heard it directly from the source. When you share your story... It has an impact. We actually do deliver. We're like the postal service of advocacy, rain, snow, sleet, humidity here in DC, <laughs> whatever the weather, we're going to deliver the petition signatures that you give us, your stories, all of the things, help you make the phone calls when there's a moment for falcon points for change. We're here for you. And they actually do get delivered. So when you look at constituencies like mom's do you have hope for the future? What kinds of things do you think we can do to power up? Well, you know, I do really have hope. And part of the reason I have hope in this moment is learning about the history of Moms Rising and all of the, you know, change that you've been able to see in the time that you've been organizing. And so now I'm going to flip the question back to you, Kristen. So, you know, this is a new role for Moms Rising to talk about narrative power strategy, but really this has been at the very center of your theory of change since the beginning. So what cultural norms and structures were you looking to disrupt when you first wrote the Motherhood Manifesto and started Moms Rising? Oh my gosh, that's a big question. I did not know about this question in advance, listeners. I have to think about what was I learning to disrupt? What was I trying to disrupt? Sexism. You know, the definition of feminism is the political, economic, and social equality of women. That's the definition of feminism. It's not, you know, over people or under people. It's equality and with equality, equity. Um, and knowing that there is no gender justice without racial justice, without economic justice. So initially looking at how do we disrupt the massive discrimination that's happening through the lens of sexism, racism, um, classism, and that's impacting moms in ways that really multiply the impact to the tune of right now, being a mom is a greater predictor of wage and hiring discrimination than gender. And moms of color experience compounded wage discrimination due to structural racism to the extent that Latina moms are earning just 46 cents to white dad's dollar and black moms just 52 cents to white dad's dollar. This shows in one stat what we are working to stop. That is the intersectional discrimination that moms in the United States of America are experiencing every day. Now, I can't talk about something bad without talking about a solution. So there are solutions to this and studies show that when we pass policies like paid family medical leave, which every other country has except six, and we are one of the six, like accessible, affordable, high quality childcare, like affordable, 
um, pay for childcare workers, like home and community-based services and healthcare, that we actually narrow those wage gaps and we raise all boats because women and moms actually fuel our economy because our economy is based on consumer spending and we make the most consumer purchasing decisions. So long story long, that is the answer. That is so great. And, you know, part what gives me so much hope about this story too, Kristen, is thinking about narrative and it starts out with, you know, envisioning the world you want to see and expanding what is possible. So if we rewind to 2006, Kristen, just starting Moms Rising and saying, wouldn't it be amazing if in 2023, the president spoke about all of our key issues at the State of the Union, or what What was it that you were envisioning could be possible and that you have seen? You have, what victories have you really seen take place? So um, first of all, there is definitely no me, people. There is no me. There is a we. Moms Rising is successful, has moved policy, has helped shift the narrative because so many people came together. So in May of 2006, um, a handful of people, myself included, came together to start Moms Rising. And at that time, we did something called the bingo card pretty shortly thereafter. And it had all of the top policy areas, which are pretty much the same today because it doesn't take rocket science to figure out what's needed to move our country forward. And those bingo cards were empty. But through the people sharing their stories, people reaching out to members of Congress, people reaching out to presidential candidates, people reaching out to leaders, over time, we've seen not only policies move forward, but we've also seen the narrative shift so that now this last State of the Union that we just had in 2023, pretty much everything on the entire bingo card, all of the policy areas were checked. The other really important different thing that has happened between when we started and where we are now is that when we first started, people were like, eh, yeah, there's a problem with family economic security and discrimination. So we're going to make one bill. And in that one bill, we're gonna take all of the 20 bazillion hundred policies that need to pass and we're gonna put them into one giant bill that will never pass. Like it will never pass. Let me repeat, if you put every single policy into one bill, then that's a messaging bill. That's not a type of legislation that you're gonna ever see move forward through Congress. And so when we started out, there was like one giant messaging bill. And over time, we've seen these policies like become powerhouses of their own and move forward. We've seen, for example, in this last omnibus bill in 2022, we had a 30% increase in funding for childcare through the child care block grants. We also saw the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act pass. We saw the Pump Act for Working Mothers pass. All of these things are passing separately. And so what happened is we moved it out of being in one policy area that people were like, yeah, we're going to put it into a bill so that we could say that we did to actually changing the policy of America through the power of moms, dads, caregivers, everybody's voices, everybody's stories, and a whole team of people at Moms Rising who came together through shared leadership to help build a country that is different, where every child could actually thrive and where we fight discrimination. That is awesome. And thank you for answering my question. That's why I'm hopeful because of what I'm seeing take place. Now, you mentioned moms, dads, caregivers. Can you talk to me about being moms rising, but why these policies matter for the broader care movement? Oh, this is interesting. So we had a long conversation. Should we be about moms in our in our name of the organization? Should we not? What should we do? 
Well, we figured moms, particularly moms of color, are among the most discriminated people in the country because of intersectional discrimination that's happening. So we decided we're not going to shy away from that. We're going to put moms front and center. We're going to center the people who are most impacted, including in our name. And we're going to have an open door, open arms, open movement to anyone with a belly button. Now stick with me for a minute. If you have ever had a mom or you are a mom, then you can be part of the Moms Rising movement. So people out there who are listening, like, have you had a mom? Yes, that's like, you know, 150% of us. Are you a mom? That's 86% of women in the United States of America have children by the time they're 44. Do you have a belly button? Pretty much everybody, I think, has a belly button. So that is who our movement is. And when you look at these public policies, we can see that passing public policies around things like childcare, paid family medical leave, home and community-based services, justice, um, maternal health and healthcare, they don't just help moms. Moms, in particularly moms of color, are the most impacted by not having those policies, but everybody who has a belly button is lifted. So these policies are policies that raise all boats across all types of families. And this is my favorite part because people don't usually know it. Like it's sort of common sense. Yes, we need these policies. Hello, have you ever been sick and needed healthcare? Yes, everybody has. Either you've had access to healthcare or you haven't. Common sense, we need these policies. And also though, these policies lift businesses and lift our economy. Jerome Powell, our Federal Reserve Chair, recently said that because we don't have care policies, we're actually hurting our international competitiveness. And he talked about that in a congressional hearing. That's because we can't keep up with other nations. We can't do everything in 24 hours, raising kids, working, doing all the things, dealing with a pandemic turned endemic without having a care infrastructure. So just like we need to build bridges and roads to drive on to go to work, we need to build that care infrastructure so kids can thrive, so parents can work. And so our economy and businesses don't have supply chain disruptions because they can't find workers because moms in particular are being pushed out of the labor force, out of their jobs that they need. And then those businesses suffer as well because there's supply chain disruptions with worker disruptions. So long story long, there you go. No, I love it. And, you know, I like how you zoom out and you look at the whole economy. What about zooming out in the family? Like what happens when a dad also takes paid family leave or, a, you know, other caregivers uh, partake in these policies? This is the most beautiful, awesome, spectacular question on the planet Earth. So when we talked about, like, what are we doing? We're trying to stop racism, sexism and classism that is holding people back and being a barrier for people to thrive of all ages, right? So when we have people of all genders utilizing public policies like access to paid family medical leave, what it does is it breaks down a lot of those discriminatory barriers. Stick with me for a minute. So some countries have paid family medical leave and their policy is if the dad takes paid family medical leave, then the whole family will get additional weeks as a bonus. They're incentivizing dads taking paid family medical leave. Why? Because studies show when you have people of all gender utilizing these policies, you stop a lot of that discrimination that's happening unfairly against moms because caregiving, the unpaid work of caregiving is more evenly distributed. Now, when we look at caregiving, there's the paid work of caregiving and caregivers, including childcare workers, are some of the lowest paid people in our country. That is not okay. That needs to change. Then we also look at the unpaid work of caregiving. 
And that is disproportionately held by moms. And the discrimination about what type of work, in quotes, counts as something that will help your paycheck and what type of work counts as something that will hurt your paycheck is very clear with the work, either paid or unpaid, of caregiving. And so having people of all genders utilize policies like paid family medical leave breaks down those barriers, lowers the wage gap between moms and non-moms. And when women have pay parity, studies show that our entire GDP will be increased by 5%. So this is here too, a win-win-win for everyone. I mean, it makes perfect sense to me. Let's do it, right? <laughs> it's time. So, you know, before we wrap up, Kristen, one thing I want to know is why you think Moms Rising has stuck around. I mean, you even have some of the original team members that were with you at the inception, and you've brought in what you call a leaderful movement. So many moms, you know, from just such diverse backgrounds and experience, what, what has made this movement keep going for all these years? Well... Sadly, there's the continued need. Um, we don't yet have a care infrastructure in America like every other country in the world has. Um, there's also the wins along the way. The Moms Rising team is brilliant. I'm honored to work on the Moms Rising team. The Moms Rising team is creative. The Moms Rising team listens to moms. The Moms Rising team centers moms. The Moms Rising team addresses racism, sexism, and classism each and every day. And the Moms Rising team moves mountains. And so we have over a million members in Moms Rising. Hello, you can be a member too. It's free. Sign up on our website. It's in the upper corner of our website, momsrising.org. Also, mamas con poder en español. And we, together with our members, are really breaking open the doors to change and being there with leaders who have the power to make the difference um, with our members. So it's a, it's a leaderful movement with a lot of members, again, a million members in every state in the nation. And we also try to make it fun. We really, really, really try hard. And I think that's the biggest thing about Moms Rising. We don't always get it right, but we're going to try no matter what, as moms do. Definitely. Well, thank you. This was so much fun, Kristen. Longtime listener, first time guest. I'm very honored to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jenny. I'm excited you're on the Moms Rising team. Well, that's it for our show today. Thanks so much for tuning in as we tackle the top topics facing our nation in a way that requires the most boring disclaimer in the history of the planet Earth. Here goes. Views expressed on this show are those of the individual speakers and should not be attributed to Moms Rising, to this station, or to any news or social media service that may disseminate a recording of this show to the public or to any segment of the public. Boom! We'll catch you next week. We're gonna fight for